Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So you've completed your first full day of practice. How was it? Fun? Um, How many people were sleepy today? Well, look around. How many people were restless today? who had uh, aches in the body? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about busy mind? Mm-hmm. You're doing great. <laughs> right on schedule. I had a feeling. Um, and remember, there are a number of people who have done this a number of times before. So it's not that you ended up in some kind of uh, weird mistake. Um, that's just part of the process. But often the, the question on the first day or so is um, some variation of, why did I think this was a good idea? <laughs> Or uh, the other um, continuous question, if you have a sense that it was a good idea, but you are somehow out of, uh, off track as everyone else, am I doing it right? How many people have had that question? Oh, yeah. So, I first want to just say what you're going through. Is this going in and out? No. Somebody says yes. People say no. Okay. (laughs) You're both right, I guess. Um, Somehow I I felt it was going in and out. Anyway, you let me know if it is. Uh, The the first day, first few days, um, you're going through a bit of a detox from stimulation, from routine, from everything that you knew well, sometimes all too well, that, um, that kept you comfortable and um, at least minimally uh, dysregulated, at least from externals. Here you are, I said this in one of the groups, Um, being told, okay, sit still and walk in a very certain way, mindfully, eat and actually taste your food. Um, You look at the schedule, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. Uh, Not a whole lot on the entertainment uh, chart, You're in a room with, in a new bed, perhaps with 
uh, with others, uh, with, with a roommate. So all of those things are kind of geared to bring up resistance. Um, I don't like this, or gee, if it was only different this way or that way. Uh, and you're also fasting from stimulation, so you're kind of, um, you don't have much entertainment or distraction on top of that. And when you're paying attention, you're asked to pay attention, what are you noticing? Sleepiness, restlessness, aches in the body, and busy mind. Well, that's not a whole, like, that's not a fun show anyway. Uh, So it's a challenge, And, and these first few days are all about feeling, um, settling in and having patience with this process. And the one thing that's different about having gone through this a number of times is you know that that's just part of the deal. Just like if you were, if you've ever done a fast, then you know uh, at the beginning you might be kind of grumpy and food looks really Good and oh, there's pizza. Oh, there's ice cream. And there's oh, there's woe is me. I, you know. um, but w- when you've fasted for a while, all of that stuff seems like too much. And it's like oh, an avocado. How, how delicious. Yeah. So you're going through this fast right now, and uh, I really uh, appreciate what you're going through and. Um, really encourage you to stay with it because it's really worth it. That's why all of us up here love to share this because it's been so meaningful to all of us. And I know if you've been practicing for any length of time, then you know that for yourself as well. Often, if you've done retreats before, and you're going through this question, oh, why did I think this was a good idea? We remember the end of the last retreat when you got really clear and settled and oh, so good. And you forget those first few days where there's all of this mm, slogging, slogging through. Um, that's what keeps you going to the next one. You know, oh, okay, that was, that was great ready to sign up again. And here you are these first couple of days. Mm, I forgot about this part. Mm. Mm -mm. So I wanted to talk tonight, particularly about this mind that has a hard time being with things the way they are, especially uh, when it starts to compare either with your previous retreats or with everyone around you. If you're new, you might be thinking, wow, all of these experienced yogis. Oh gosh, I'm just a, you know, novice. I don't know what I'm doing here. And everybody else is sitting like a Buddha and, and I'm just kind of freaking out inside, you know. Or if you're experienced, then you might be thinking, oh, I'm an experienced yogi, right? Uh, look at this mind. All the newbies are probably quieter than I am. Yeah. Uh, it's just part of what happens. When does it come up for you today? 
or since you've been here. Uh, comparing either to others or to previous retreat experience. When does it come up for you? And if you see it, hold it with compassion. It's just the mind. Okay, so we're going to explore that a little bit. And it comes up when the mind is into comparing, then uh, whether you're uh, whether you're thinking of yourself as not as good as or even even, hey, look at me. I think I got it. Got it down. The Buddha calls all of this, he calls it the conceit of I am. Mana, M-A-N-A, the conceit of I am. In any kind of comparing with others, this is what he says. One who thinks oneself equal to or superior or inferior, for that very reason, disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person, the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. For one who is free from views such as these, there are no ties. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions like these they wander about in the world annoying people. <laughs> That's one translation. And who do we annoy? Who do we annoy most? Guess. Yeah. But it's so, so deep inside of us. You know, you can be walking and you think, you know, wow, look how slow. Or somebody who's going fast and you say, you know, wow, they just are so unselfconscious. They can just be how they are, how amazing. Or it can be the reverse. Oh, look how slow they're going. Who are they trying to impress? You know? Or, wow, look at how fast they're going. Don't they get it? Slow down, man. You know. So the mind can just get caught in any kind of ideas or comparisons. <clears throat> and we come from a, especially here in the States, although it's probably not only the States, but particularly the States, we come from a very competitive culture. We're number one. We're number one. You know, whether it's your football team, you know, or your basketball team, we were the best huh? <laughs> or your religion or your ethnic group or your shortcomings. Wow. I'm more screwed up than anybody here. I used to use it like a badge of courage when I was in college and reading a lot of existential philosophy. Wow. I'm really screwed up, <sighs> you know, <laughs> not as shallow as all those other people, you know, or our dramas, or our traumas, 
or our bodies or our minds or our accomplishments or lack of accomplishments. All of the ways that we somehow set ourselves apart from everyone else. On one retreat, I, um, I was, I saw this clearly, you know, how, how he said that I used to go slow. I used to go really slow. I loved it. I, I can't do that anymore, but I just, it could get, it's so when you're in that mode, especially on a longer retreat, it's just so fascinating. You see, Oh, each step, there's so many sensations within each step. And it was great. And I'd be by myself, and I'd be going, lifting, moving, placing. Somebody else would come in to the walking room, and I'd start catching myself, and I'd be noting, lifting, moving, looking good, lifting, (laughs) moving, Looking good, looking good. Because that was what was going on. I was saying, oh, look at this presentation. It was, it was really humbling. Right? So this is, it's so deep, this conceit of I am. You might be comforted to know this, what's called fetter, this obstruction to awakening is even present at the third stage of enlightenment. And in this, the classical Theravadan model, there are four stages of enlightenment. Stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, and arhat, completely, fully enlightened. Even first stage is, you're doing pretty good if one were to judge. Even at the third stage of enlightenment, there's still the conceit of I am. It's one of the last things to go. Comparing ourselves to others or to some idealized standard of what we think should be happening or who we think we should be. And when I look at it, it's, um, it's rooted in, in fear of somehow not being enough, that I'm not good enough just the way I am. Any I'm not good enough thoughts ever visit you? Tell me if they don't, and I will, you know, see if you've made it to full enlightenment here. <clears throat> a number of years ago, well, many years ago, it was on the second three-month retreat I did, that retreat when, where Howie and I were first sitting together. The Dalai Lama came to um, visit the retreat near the end. It was, it's a great way to end a three-month retreat, to have the Dalai Lama come. He had just come to the States for the first time. This is in 1979. And he had these, uh, he had a Q&A. He heard about all these meditators who were very sincere and diligent in their, their practice. And uh, so he said, oh, I want to visit with these, these yogis. And he had this Q&A. And 
one guy raises his hand and he says, uh, Your Holiness, uh, do you have any advice for um, working with self-hatred? And the translator translated to the Dalai Lama the question, and the Dalai Lama didn't get the concept at first, and they went back and forth. Mm, Self-hate, he said, hating yourself? He said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Imagine sitting for two and a half months and the Dalai Lama saying, you're wrong. (laughs) But, But he said it with tremendous compassion. And what I got from that was, what makes you think that everything else belongs in this universe and somehow you're not good enough? You're wrong. Um, An analogous teaching from the Course in Miracles, this wonderful body of of wisdom from uh, Christian Christian theology. There's a line that says, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. I love that line. So here we are trying to see clearly and to see not only this breath, but ultimately to see who we really are. What in the teachings is called non-delusion or seeing through ignorance. And ignorance in Buddhist teachings is not stupidity. It's simply not seeing clearly. And that is why Mindfulness is such a powerful, liberating um, cultivation of mind that when you see clearly, when you're not lost in your beliefs or your thoughts or your habits or any ways that the mind is constructing reality, when you see through that, it's really good news. You know, yesterday, uh, Howie was uh, giving the refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha. And besides that historical figure that lived 25, 2600 years ago, when we take refuge in the Buddha, the word Buddha means one who is awake. I take refuge in the Buddha. It's right in here. The seed of awakening is right in you. And when you're taking refuge in it, you're acknowledging or uh, opening to the understanding that you too have this pure heart and this goodness and this, this divinity within you. Because you are an expression of life. 
coming through this form that's uniquely yours, that's never been here before. <clears throat> I wonder if I found there was something that I wanted to... No. Um, what Ajahn Sumedho, I, I don't have it here, there's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful quote. Ajahn Sumedho says, you know, when we quiet down our minds and we see through all of our habits and confusions, um, we see these beautiful qualities of loving kindness and compassion <clears throat> and joy and peace, equanimity. And he, he, said, he calls that the shining through of the divine. The shining through of the divine. There is the divine that shines through you when your mind isn't contracted and lost in its uh, confusion. So mindfulness allows us to see things as they really are and see us as we really are. And I wanted to share with you as part of this talk um, a discourse by the Buddha it was the second discourse that he gave after he became enlightened and he went to his um, group of five fellow uh, ascetic monastics, monks, who had been practicing the most austere practices for, um, for a number of years together. And they, then they abandoned him when he went soft and took some food and, and were, were not as hardcore ascetics. And then he became enlightened and he found them. And at first they said, oh, no, 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 you know, you, you, went, you went soft. You're not a hardcore tough monk. And he said, I found what we are looking for. And they said, no, no. He said, have I ever lied to you? And they said, no, you've always been honest. He said, well, I found it. I want to share with you what I've discovered. And the first discourse was the Four Noble Truths, the turning of the wheel, at which one of those five became enlightened. The second discourse, which I want to share with you now, all the others became enlightened. So you're ready? <clears throat> this is called the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the discourse on the not self characteristic. Now, not self or the selfless nature of reality can seem like a very, it is a very profound and deep teaching. But it's possible to get, start to get a glimpse of it. And particularly for our purposes as we practice, particularly with this judging mind that gets lost in its thoughts, uh, I wanted to offer it to you uh, because uh, there, you might start to look at things and look at this body and mind in a, in a, in a liberating perspective, or at least starting to get a sense of that. 
So I hope this is useful to you. Um, and I'll, I'll just, it's not that long a discourse, so I'll just read the essence of it, but really share it with you. The Blessed One was staying at Varanasi, that's Benares, in the game refuge at Isipatana. There he addressed the group of five monks. Thus, form monks is not self. That's this body. Form is not self. This body is not self. If form were self, that is, if you owned this body and you ran things in it, if form were the self, this form would not lend itself to disease. It would be possible to say with regard to form, let this form be thus. Let this form not be thus. That is, oh, let my body feel complete ease. Let my body not hurt. Uh-uh. But precisely because form is not self, that is, you don't run the show, form lends itself to disease. And it is not possible to say with regard to form, let this form be thus, let this form not be thus. And then he goes into what's called the rest of the, the five aggregates, Feeling, that is, the, your, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of experience is not self. That is, you don't say, oh, I want to like this pain in my knee. No, it's just automatic. It happens. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You don't say, and then perception is not self. You don't. Can you look at this and see that it's a bell? No. You look at it, oh, that's a cup or a glass, whatever you want to call it. Perception, that recognition, it's in there. You can't not see objects and recognize them according to past experience. At least if you don't train, if you can train yourself to see a different way, but it happens automatically. Mental formations are not self. Can you not have certain thoughts? Can you say, um, hmm, I'd like to have only pleasant thoughts today. No unpleasant thoughts. But when the unpleasant thoughts come, do they come because you say, oh, I could do for a with a little self-doubt today. Yeah, that, that'll do me good. Yeah. Oh, how about uh, some rage? Yeah, I think, yeah. It just happens by itself. So form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and this consciousness itself is not self. Can you turn it off? Can you... not hear that bell if your ears are working? You can't. You can't turn your awareness off. You can't turn your consciousness off. 
You don't run it. So then he goes on to say, what do you think? Is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Lord. And then he goes and he says, is that which is impermanent easeful or stressful? Stressful, Lord, or leading to suffering. Is it fitting to regard what is impermanent, stressful, subject to change as this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am? No. And he goes through the same with perception, uh, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Um, thus, any form whatsoever that is past, future, or present, internal or external, Blatant or sublime, common or sublime, far or near, every form is to be seen as it actually is with right discernment. This is not mine. This is not myself. This is not what I am. And the same with all the other ones, all the other four aggregates. Seeing thus the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones grows disenchanted with form. Now disenchanted is a tricky word. It means you're not enchanted by it. You're not under its spell. Disenchanted with feeling, perception, mental formations or fabrications, consciousness, disenchantment, breaking the spell one becomes dispassionate, which means you're not hooked by it. And through this not being hooked, one is fully released. With full release, there is knowledge. Ah, the task is done. There is nothing further for this world. That is what The Blessed One said, gratified, the group of five monks delighted at his words. And while this explanation was being given, the hearts of the group of five monks, through not clinging, were fully released from suffering and became enlightened. Anyone out there? (laughs) And it's one thing to have the idea and you might, you know, hopefully some of that makes sense to you. It's a whole other one to go from the idea to a lived understanding embodied experience. You know, I have that. I've had that idea and have understood it for some time and there's still work to do, you know, even though I really get it. Yeah, I can get caught. That's okay. You can only be where you are. But once you start seeing the world in that way, and particularly yourself in that way, there's tremendous freedom that happens. And it's not like you disappear when you see through self. You know, some people think, oh my God, what's going to happen that I'm not, I'm not real. I'm not who I thought I am. Is it going to be like I just evaporate? Uh, No, it doesn't hurt at all. 
you're just kind of, you play the game. I play the game of being James and Howie plays the game of being Howie and all of us do. But there's more of a lightness in the game. You don't take it as the only show in town. How do we do that? Simply by realizing we don't run the show. Our thoughts come and go on their own. How many thoughts have you had today? Thousands and thousands. Could you stop the show? Any one of them, can you say, oh, that's, that's the real me. They're just happening all on their own. How many emotions, moods have you gone through in one day? There's a lot in a day of practice, you know. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Oh, my God, when's the sitting going to end? Oh, oh, look at what's for lunch. I can't believe how much they put on their plate, etc., etc. How many moods have you gone through and emotions have you gone through? How many sensations have you gone through in one sitting? Just to see that this body follows its own laws. This mind also follows its own laws, mostly through habit, mostly through causes and conditions, things that have been practiced. And we get caught in what the Buddha called I-making or my-making. That's, that's the phrase he used. Oh, I-making. What in modern parlance is called selfing. Taking this to be self. Anger arises. Oh, I'm such an angry person. Yeah. Loneliness arises. Oh, what a lonely, pathetic being you are. No. No. Oh. Angry Buddha. Lonely Buddha. Joyful Buddha. They're all just coming and going. But when we take it to be who we are, we solidify this identity. And this is where the word identification comes in. To identify with experience is to take ownership of that experience as being who I am. When it's just all of these mental factors and thoughts and feelings just coming and going and coming and going. Here's a little pointer to uh, maybe get a glimpse of this from, from the inside uh, of this selfless nature of reality that sees through the comparing and the judging mind. Uh, just try this. Uh, mostly, we think of ourselves as somebody with an identity. Is that old Mullah Nasruddin uh, story? Mullah Nasruddin, this eccentric, uh, uh, wise man, fool, lots of uh, stories about uh, the teaching. And Mullah Nasruddin walks into a bank and uh, to, to cash a check. And they, uh, the person behind the, the counter says, uh, could you show me some proof? Um, show me your uh, 
ID and he takes out a mirror and he looks at it and says, yep, that's me. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Mostly we take our thoughts and feelings and identify with them as being who we are. And we think of ourselves as somebody. Yep, that's me. But here's a little shift of perspective. Just try this so you can close your eyes for a moment. And first, relate to yourself as a noun, as a person, as somebody to whom life is happening. That's a valid way to understand this body-mind process called you. Yep, that's me. With your history, with your uh, habits, with your personality. Okay. Now, shift from being a noun to think of yourself as a verb. As a field of experience with so many processes happening inside of you, circulatory system, pumping blood through, digestive system, knowing just how to digest your lunch and your dinner and turn it into nutrients and then waste. You are. <clears throat> your nervous system interacting with the world all the time, constantly, your immune system fighting against invaders continuously. There's so many battles happening in your body right now that you have no idea of. So many things, your thoughts coming and going, sensations, you are a verb, a field of activity, of life moving through you. And there's nowhere in there that you can point to that's unchanging, that's fixed. It's all process. I'll just be quiet for a few moments and just enjoy the verbness of you. You see the difference? Can you sense the difference? Once you tune into just the fluidity of this reality, then the thought of, oh, what do they think of me is irrelevant. Who is me anyway? Just this pattern of life called you. It's not to abandon that other, but it's just to see in the bigger picture the reality that's not constructed by your ideas and mind. <clears throat> and this is what 
mindfulness allows us to do. Because there you are sitting, maybe trying to be with the breath, or as we open up the field and include more and more things, and you notice, oh, breathing, oh, hearing, oh, sensation, thought, more thought, breathing, more thought, hearing, continually changing experience. And you see through the solidity of it, it's always changing. And your sense doors and perceptions and reality is continuously changing. Mindfulness reveals impermanence. And when you see impermanence clearly, you see this body mind is also impermanent. And there's no fixed, unchanging place that you can point to. So mindfulness is tremendously liberating in that way. There's a few other ways that mindfulness is liberating. When you're mindful, you're not lost in your stories. Here's a simple exercise that I love that uh, I first learned from my teacher about the simplicity of how mindfulness works. Just put your hand out in front of you right now and move it slowly back and forth. Now close your eyes as you're doing this and put all your attention on feeling the movement. Is there any worry right now? Is there any judging against somebody else? Just feeling the movement. Is there any yesterday or guilt or wanting? Just feeling the movement. Okay, you can put your, your hand down, open your eyes. Congratulations, you were just mindful. And in that moment, you weren't lost in your stories. So mindfulness is a very resting, connecting place where you're simply here with things as they are. How freeing. You don't have to get rid of any thoughts at all. Just pay attention to what's here and you're not caught in them. Isn't that amazing? Here's another way that it works. Um, another simple exercise. Close your eyes for a moment and uh, bring someone to mind who, um, who you have some feelings one way or another for. Okay, Don't get too lost in it, but just bring them to mind and just connect with them. Now become aware that you're in a room full of a lot of people and we're all making pictures in our minds. Here we are just making pictures. Okay. Can you see the difference between being in the middle of the movie? Oh, yes. I care so much about. And, oh, my mind has just made a picture, made a movie. In that moment, 
that you become aware that the mind has created it. You know, it's beautiful to have those feelings, but usually we're in the movie. We've jumped into the movie screen and are living it until we wake up and say, oh, wow, I was gone for a while. That, that's interesting. So both of those ways, mindfulness, and there's many other ways we can talk a lot about the power of mindfulness, <clears throat> but not getting caught in, <clears throat> in our stories or seeing through the stories, not identifying with our thoughts or our feelings. That's the doorway to freedom. And you just did it right now. So you have that capacity. The only thing you need to do is keep cultivating mindfulness, which is what we're doing here on the retreat. Because mindfulness, when developed strongly, when there is a continuity of mindfulness and there is a, a penetrating awareness through the usual delusion of me, I, me, and mine, then wisdom arises. Then you see things are impermanent and trying to hold on to what's impermanent is a setup for suffering. And this body and mind also are impermanent, are verbs and not nouns. And that is tremendously freeing. How does that happen? Moments of mindfulness built on each other develop into this concentrated mindfulness. And by concentrated, I don't mean laser-like, although that's possible too. But the continuity of mindfulness, what you are doing today, <clears throat> besides the sitting and the walking, the eating and the putting on your shoes and the brushing your teeth, you know, how he said it earlier, there's sitting and walking and everything else. The everything else is the key. And if you can make brushing your teeth as sacred an act as sitting here in the hall and feeling your breath, now you've got something developed. So not that you've got to pounce. You can't pounce on the moment. You can dance through, and whenever you see you've gone, just bring yourself back. That's, that's the whole deal. Okay, trying to be here in a balanced way, relaxed, interested, and kind. And when you see you've gone, oh, come on back. That's it. And if you bring yourself back in a loving way every time you see you've gone and have a continuity of mindfulness, this is what happens. In the beginning, it's effort. Absolutely, just to land here in the present moment. It takes about two or three days, to be frank with you, okay? Of continually 
bringing yourself back in a very loving way. But as you do that and the mindfulness gets stronger, it's more interesting. Everything becomes more interesting. Somebody in the group today, it was so beautiful what they, they, they talked about, just seeing the smallest little thing. And, and it was like a revelation. When things are more interesting, you want to pay more attention and the mindfulness gets stronger. If you say, well, you know, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If I'm not, I'm not. You know, they said relaxed. I'll, I'll, I'll take that to heart. Um, no, it's not going to happen because it takes energy to bring yourself here. Once you're here, you don't need to put any energy into it. Just be here. But it takes energy to start. But if you don't bring yourself back, the mindfulness isn't strong. When it's not strong, things are not so interesting. It's boring. And my fantasies are a whole lot more fascinating than this next in-breath. No. And so when the mindfulness is weak and things are boring and you don't want to pay attention, it's not as much fun. I can very well remember, I'm in there right now in my head, being in the middle of a retreat where the mindfulness would get strong and the thought occurred to me, who needs drugs? In, out, wow. So I'm not saying to go for that on a three-day, on a, on a five-day retreat, but I will say you will likely find the more you pay attention in a loving way, the more everything will start to reveal itself. And it's really worth the effort. Joseph Goldstein has this image he used to use. I don't know if he used it anymore. At the beginning, it's like you're, you're cranking an old engine, you know, going around and around. It takes effort. And then after a little while, and then it's cranked up. And then it becomes an effortless effort. So just to keep that in mind, continuity is the key. Here's a few more thoughts about working with this comparing mind. And I don't have that much time, but I'll just point to some of these. When you see you're getting caught in the mind, the judging mind, don't judge it. <laughs> That's just more judging. Instead of judgment, forgiveness or self-compassion. You're trying to do the best you can. It's okay. Just feel good about the sincerity that you're bringing, not the result of what it looks like. You're opening up to all of those habits of mind that have been practiced for a long time. So whenever you see it, instead of feeling discouraged, appreciate that you're seeing it. Pema Chodron, wonderful teacher that probably many of you know, I love a line. She says, take delight in the awareness that sees the dukkha. Take delight in the awareness that sees the suffering, not, oh, there I am again, judging. It's, oh, 
I'm seeing it. It's like the Buddha saying, I see you, Mara. Yes, I see it. With forgiveness, with self-compassion. Another little thing that you might keep in mind. See those thoughts as empty and impermanent. Like I said before, you don't invite those thoughts in. They just come in by themselves. Joseph has another very, really great instruction. He says, if you're bothered by the thoughts that are going through your mind, just think of them as coming from the person behind you. (laughs) Works every time, you know. (laughs) Then you can have compassion for them, you know. Not my thought, you know. You don't, for all intents and purposes, it's true. You didn't invite that thought. Where did it come from? Can you say, oh, I'm so bad for having that thought? Blue. It just came out of the blue. Well, feel compassion for the guy behind you. Yeah. Along that line, having a sense of humor makes a huge difference. Because when you have a sense of humor, when you can go from, oh, God, look at my mind to, Look at the mind do its thing. The mind instead of my mind. Then you're in on the joke. You're in on this cosmic joke instead of the butt of the joke. Oh, look at my mind. Well, look at the mind. Yeah. Another <clears throat> acting as if you were enlightened can work. Oh. What would the Buddha do with this? Oh, it's oh, it's okay. Just the mind filled with anger is the mind filled with anger. No problem, you know. Or an inspiring teacher of yours, you know. How would they act? I've I've had many conversations with Joseph Goldstein in my mind. He's always so smart, you know. Where is it? It's in this mind. But we sometimes need to um, have a mirror of somebody who helps us unlock the wisdom that's right inside. Forgiveness and self-compassion is really pointing to loving yourself, being kind to yourself, and knowing you're doing the best you can. That's all you can do. And feel good about that. Appreciate that. You're doing something that's not only beneficial to you, but for everyone in your life. And the more you can learn to be kind to yourself and even appreciate yourself, the more everybody gets the goodies. Everybody gets the beautiful qualities, the divine shining through you. Taking refuge in your Buddha nature. There is a Buddha, or whether you think of it as uh, the kingdom of heaven, or the Christ within, or your true nature, whatever you call it. You are life expressing itself uniquely in a way that's never been before. And you're not not good enough. You are perfect just the way you are. 
and there's growth to do and impurities to clear. But it starts with, what is Pema Chodron? Uh, start where you are. You start right where you are. So if you find these, these habits of mind catch you and you get lost, don't worry about it. Mindfulness is just one thought away, one moment away. And I'll end with a short poem that I love from Dana Falls, one of my, my favorite Dharma poet. <clears throat> this is called Walk Slowly. It only takes a reminder to breathe, a moment to be still. And just like that, something in me settles, softens, makes space for imperfection. The harsh voice of judgment drops to a whisper. And I remember again that life isn't a relay race, that we will all cross the finish line, that waking up to life is what we were born for. As many times as I forget, catch myself charging forward without even knowing where I'm going, that many times I can make the choice to stop, to breathe, and be, and walk slowly into the mystery. So let's just sit for a moment. Let the words settle. Thank you very much for your attention. So we'll have a, <clears throat> a half an hour for walking now. And when you go out, uh, enjoy the night air. And when we come back, um, we have a treat uh, this evening and, and every evening. Um, we didn't do meta today because we had the groups in the afternoon. Um, but um, this evening, as part of the, the last uh, sit, with, uh, with some chanting, Eve is going to um, share a song on request by me, uh, the um, beautiful meta song uh, that I think you really like. Uh, so you'll get a, a teaching and um, a presentation on metta, especially metta for self, 
uh, this evening. Okay, and when you go out in the night air, be mindful and just enjoy the moment. Okay, see you at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.